This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, I think they have me wired in now. Are you getting it? Yeah, there. There's the sound. Okay. Good. Nice to see each of you here. I would encourage you, if you are wanting to listen in English, to come a little farther forward. It might be better, particularly if there turns out to be a translation group in the back, uh, then there would be less um, you know, interference between the two. Um, so, and, and you know, students, it's the ones who sit in the front who get the best grades, right? So. My name is William Fagel. I'm one of the associate directors of the Ellen G. White Estate, and I'm really pleased to be here with you today. Um, my colleague, Cindy Tooch, would have been the, the natural one to come, um, but she had another appointment and couldn't be here, so I was the one that was lucky enough to be able to come. And uh, I'm going to be sharing with you today some things about the life and ministry of Ellen White, and particularly about Scripture and how Scripture relates to these things. In presenting the program I have for you today, which I hope you'll be able to see on the screen, it isn't as bright as I would wish it might be, but perhaps it will help. Uh, I'm, I'm using a program that uh, uh, Cindy Tooch initially developed, and I've modified it, added to it, and one of our capable staff people at the White Estate made this nice PowerPoint presentation out of it. So uh, we'll share together on uh, these things uh, today. Let's begin by asking the Lord's blessing on our, our gathering. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can be here at this conference. What a blessing it's been to us already. And we're thankful for the gift that you have given to us through the life and ministry of Ellen White, pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to the way home to heaven. And I pray that you will be with us as we study today. May our hearts be open to your spirit. May we uh, hear your voice speaking to us. May we follow, may we always follow that voice is my prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're talking today about a special agent of the kingdom of heaven, Ellen G. White and her prophetic ministry. Really, she's a prophet for such a time as this. Several years ago, a major magazine in North America called National Geographic published an article that included a feature about a desert village where people live a very long time. Many people there, in fact, live to be 100 years old. Scientists studied them to figure out why these people live to be so old, and the article reported on what they found. Now, the desert village that I'm speaking of is called Loma Linda, California. And in Loma Linda, there is a famous hospital so maybe the reason people there live so long is that they've received such good medical care at the hospital. Well, no, that isn't it. 
In fact, the people who live a long time there went to the hospital less often than most other people in that region do. Well, there is a medical school and a nursing school in Loma Linda. So we might guess that the reason people in Loma Linda tend to live a long time is because they're up on the latest treatments for disease, uh, the most recent medical research, and the latest discoveries of vitamins and herbs. But no, that isn't it either. That didn't explain their good health. So what was the explanation? Why did these people in this place get less cancer, less heart disease, less diabetes? Why did they get sick less often than other people and live longer than the regular population? When the researchers narrowed it all down, they discovered a surprising answer. The reason that these people experience such a high level of health and well-being is because they follow the counsels of a prophet named Ellen G. White. Specifically, the people the scientists studied were Seventh-day Adventists. And what the scientists found is that the more closely Adventists followed the prophetic guidance of Ellen White, the better their health. Now, today, we're going to be talking about this Ellen G. White, this woman of God. We can't meet her personally, unfortunately, because she died in 1915. That's almost 100 years ago. But she wrote more than 100,000 pages of books and sermons, articles and letters. And through these written words, she still speaks to us. And those who are wise will listen because her words were not merely her own. God gave her, we think, um, perhaps as many as 2,000 visions and prophetic dreams, according to the estimate of her grandson, Arthur L. White, who is here in this picture that is on the screen. When she spoke and wrote, she was communicating to us what the Holy Spirit had given to her. In 2 Chronicles 20, 20, we read, Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and, and you shall prosper. Seventh-day Adventists have proven the truth of this Bible principle in our experience with Ellen G. White. She has blessed the church in many ways. She's been a treasure for me personally. And I hope that by the end of today's presentation, Every one of you will want to make her one of the treasures in your life and in the life of your family as well. So let me begin with a personal story, my story, really, and I have to make it short because we have a lot to cover today. I was brought up in a good Christian home, an Adventist home. My parents were genuine Christians. But God has no grandchildren we are each to be his son or daughter directly, not through mother and father. So it's not good enough that our mothers and fathers are his children. Though I was what people would have called a good kid, uh, to most appearances at least, I knew that I was not good on the inside. And I found that I could not change my heart nor the actions that that heart produced. I wondered, I remember distinctly wondering if there really was anything at all to this Christian life that I'd been hearing about all my life because I didn't see its power working in me. 
I was not a real Christian, and I knew it. And I was ashamed to tell anyone about my struggles, least of all my parents, who would have been glad to try to help me. And so I was in a real predicament, not knowing the way out. And one day, I thought of a little book whose title seemed to suggest that it might be what I needed. That book was called Steps to Christ. It was written by Ellen G. White. I read that book, and one part of it in particular, in the chap- toward the end of the chapter called Consecration, if you're wondering, <laughs> I found that she seemed to describe me exactly and my struggles exactly. And the book told me what I was missing and how I could experience it. As I thought about it and thought of how it applied to my life, I I decided to try it. And my life was changed from the inside out. God spoke to me in those pages. And I've never been the same since. I'll always be grateful to Ellen White and to God for that book and what it did for me. I've shared the principles that I discovered with many other people over the years, and I've seen how it has helped them, too. So I know from personal experience the way God speaks through the writings of Ellen G. White. But what does the Bible say about prophets and prophecy? We always need to come back to that simple question, what does the Bible say? I've told you about health researchers who discovered that following the counsel of Ellen White helps people to avoid cancer and heart disease and diabetes. And that's pretty impressive, isn't it? And I've told you about my own personal blessing that came through reading one of Ellen White's books. So we have evidence from science that she was wise, and I have evidence in my own experience that she was good. But Seventh-day Adventists do not think of Mrs. White as merely a wise or good woman. We believe that she is a special agent of the kingdom of God. We believe that God gave her the gift of prophecy. Now, when it comes to calling someone a prophet, the proof cannot be science or my own personal experience, as valuable as those things are. We must ask the question, what does the Bible say? What has God revealed to his people in his word, the Bible, about the work of a prophet? We're going to look at a number of Bible texts today that will help us understand this matter. First, we're going to see that the Bible tells us to expect a prophet. Now, this in itself may be surprising because most Christians today, if they've thought about it at all, tend to think that the age of prophecy ended back in Bible times with the close of the book of Revelation and that there really cannot be the genuine gift of prophecy since that time. But what does the Bible say? That's what we want to look at. God gave the prophet Joel a vision that looked forward to the very end of time. And here's what God showed him from Joel 2, 28. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. 
Now, the setting here, if we read around it, the setting here is events that will take place near the end of this world's history. So, living near the end of the world, we can expect God to communicate with his people in a special way through the gift of prophecy, according to this passage right here. Joel saw a great increase, we might even say an explosion, uh, of prophetic visions and dreams in the last days. So we should expect God to bless his church with the gift of prophecy. The Apostle Paul assured Christians this way in Ephesians chapter 4, speaking of Christ, that he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, I'm going to read more of the verse, but I want to stop here and just point something out. And that is that prophets are listed here along with other gifts of the Spirit, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers. They are included with these gifts uh, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, let's finish reading the verse. For how long would this be? For how long would we expect this to be true? Until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of God. Are we there yet? Have we achieved all of that yet? No, I would say, you would say along with me that we haven't. And so we still have a need for the spiritual gifts, including the gift of prophecy. And God has promised to give them until we reach that point when they are really no longer needed. And notice, notice what, uh, what blessings are involved here. Uh, the, the prophets are to work along with other leaders in the church uh, to, to uh, bring about unity, uh, bring God's people into unity, to help us know Jesus personally. You see it here in the text, don't you? And to lead us to full spiritual maturity, a maturity that reflects the very fullness of God. That's an amazing assignment, isn't it? It's a glorious mission. And we're not there yet and so we still need the gifts, including the gift of prophecy. And the Bible indicates that these gifts are for all of that time, down until we reach that full maturity. So instead of seeing that the Bible teaches that the end of prophets, the end of the prophetic age, uh, was, you know, that came with the close of the book of Revelation, we're seeing Bible texts that point right down to the end of time for the functioning of the genuine gift of prophecy. Next, we're going to go to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And here we find that prophets are partners with angels in bringing people to Jesus. Once when the apostle John was visited by an angel, he fell at the angel's feet as a sign of respect and awe. In fact, he describes it as, I fell at his feet to worship him. And the angel would not permit it. Let's read the text here in Revelation 19.10. He said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, who has the spirit of prophecy? Who has the testimony of Jesus? Is it the church at large? Is this uh, what everybody, every Christian has? Well, we have a parallel passage to this one. It's in Revelation 22, 
verse 9. John has practically the, the same experience a second time. And again, he falls at the feet of the angel. And uh, the angel again uh, reproves him. He said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant. Now, that's exactly what he said before, isn't it? And of your brethren, he said that before too. But now, in place of who have the testimony of Jesus, the angel says, the prophets, your brethren, the prophets. They are the ones who have the testimony of Jesus. And uh, if we go back then and look at Revelation 19.10 again, this only makes sense, doesn't it? Because the end of the verse tells us, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, what is the spirit of prophecy? Well, that's the Holy Spirit in his work of bringing prophecy to his people. The spirit of prophecy is the Holy Spirit bringing prophecy, just as Jesus called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth because he would guide you into all truth. So it is the Holy Spirit in his specific work of bringing prophecy to God's people. Now, the central mission of the church is to preach Jesus Christ. In this mission, the church enjoys the protection and the support of angels. To support this mission, God blesses the church also with the ministry of prophets. So to review, can we expect a prophet in the last days? What does the Bible say? Well, Joel, the Bible prophet who lived more than 2,500 years ago, said that in the last days, God would send visions and dreams. The Apostle Paul said that prophets, along with other leaders, would lead the church to unity, to spiritual maturity, and to a deep knowledge of Jesus, and that this would continue until we reached that full maturity. And in Revelation, the great guidebook for end times, we read that prophets are fellow servants with the angels in giving the testimony of Jesus. Jesus' testimony, Jesus' word to his followers. The prophets are fellow servants with the angels in giving that. So, to repeat our first point, we should expect God to keep his promise. We should expect a prophet in the last days. Now, next, we should... Um, well, let me, yeah, we should test the prophet, okay. And by the way, I wish you could see it. There really is a, uh, <laughs> you know, our earlier part of the outline there, expect a prophet. I'm afraid it just isn't going to show up on the screen. I'm sorry. But now, test a prophet. While all of us are called to cooperate with God, the prophets have a special mission, an extraordinary call, and the Bible is full of their stories, stories of men and women and even children who received the prophetic gift and did special service for God. Now, the Bible also warns us that there are false prophets. Just because someone claims the prophetic gift doesn't mean that we should receive everything they say without examining it carefully. Jesus gave this warning. He said in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. 
Looking ahead to the judgment day, Jesus warned, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Now that's pretty sobering, isn't it? Think about people prophesying and even working miracles, but not from a connection with Jesus. So how do we tell the difference? How do we distinguish between the promised gift of prophecy and the imposters? Fortunately, God doesn't leave us guessing. Earlier in the passage from which I just quoted, Jesus points out the difference. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And how do we know what God's will is? Well, the Bible tells us that also. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. When Satan tried to trick Jesus out in the desert, how did Jesus expose his temptations? You know, don't you? By quoting scripture, by quoting the word of God. Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the book of Acts, we read that when Paul preached in the city of Berea, the people there did not just take his word. They checked the Bible to see if he was telling the truth. And you know, the Bible does not criticize them for, for investigating or for questioning. Instead, it even commends them. You know the passage, don't you, in Acts 17, 11. These, speaking of the Bereans, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they, re um, they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily, searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So even when the great apostle Paul preached, his hearers were not supposed to listen uncritically and just accept everything. They investigated his claims. How? By comparing what he said with what the Bible says. To quote the prophet Isaiah, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That's Isaiah 8.20. Now, this is in the setting, by the way, of people receiving messages from beyond human sources. And here we have a, uh, a test. In fact, it's one of the four explicit tests in Scripture that we are to apply to determine if those who claim to have messages from God really are genuine prophetic voices. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now, the people of Berea provide an excellent example of how we should respond to someone who appears as a special agent of the kingdom of heaven. The Bereans listened eagerly. They wanted the special gift of God that Paul brought, but they tested it, comparing what Paul said 
with the Word of God. Notice this counsel that Paul gave the people in Thessalonica. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Don't you like that? Don't pour cold water on the exciting new things that God says. Don't just dismiss people who claim to have received messages from God. Instead, welcome them, but test them. Test them. And treasure all the good that God sends us, especially the good messages God sends through his prophets. Now, I've mentioned one test, an explicit test that the Bible gives us, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. There are several other explicit tests, things that the Bible names as tests of the prophetic gift. We want to look at those quickly. Here is uh, one of them in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And here's how. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Fulfilled prediction, then, is one of the tests of a genuine prophet. If the prophet makes a prediction, we should expect the prediction to come true. However, this is not the only thing that the Bible says on this subject. This is found in Deuteronomy 18, but there is a corresponding truth in Jeremiah 18. And I'd like to show it to you just now. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 to 10. We're only going to read the first two of the four. The instant, and it's God speaking here, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Now you see there, God says, I give a prophecy that I'm going to destroy this particular nation, but if they repent, I will relent of the disaster that I was going to bring on it. And the other two verses say the same thing, but on the other side. Uh, you can look them up for yourself. But we would note here, then, that the predictions of even a true prophet may be conditional. And if the conditions change, as we've just seen here in Jeremiah's prophecy, then the outcome may change. And we have to let the Bible speak for itself on this. Some prophecies may be conditional. Can you think of an example in Scripture where a prophet gave uh, God's warning that he was going to destroy a particular place and then didn't do it? <laughs> yes, Jonah, that's right. Um, now, in the book of Jonah, you won't find any conditional expression about this from Jonah. He doesn't say, if you don't repent, God will destroy your city. He simply brought the message 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But even though there was not a conditional element uh, in it explicitly, yet it was conditional. And when the conditions changed, the people repented, God changed the outcome. So that too is a part of what scripture tells us and we need to account for it. Oh, that's good, we're, we're improving things here for the display. 
All right, let's move on. Uh, so we have two tests so far. One was they have to agree with God's word. The second is that predictions should be fulfilled unless they may be conditional. Here's our third test. 1 John 4, 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see, this is an explicit thing about testing prophets, isn't it? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist. What's this about? Confessing that Jesus has come in the flesh. Couldn't a lot of false prophets confess that? Well, maybe they could today. In John's day, it was unlikely. Why was this such an issue then? Well, in Greek thought, there were two realms. There was the physical realm and there was the spiritual realm. God dwelt in the spirit realm, and that was the realm of goodness. There was no evil in, in God's realm. But here in the material realm, that's where we dwell, and material, matter, that was evil in contrast to the good of the spirit realm. And so when Christians came along and said, God became a human being, God took on flesh, to the Greek thinkers, that was foolishness. In fact, the Bible describes uh, uh, Paul preaching to the Athenians, and when he mentioned the resurrection, uh, they, they thought this was foolish. How could God actually inhabit material, human, you know, human flesh? And John says, he, he won't allow for any compromise on this. If they don't say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, they're not of God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Jesus really did come and take on our human flesh. Now, this is not the only test, is it? We're, we've looked at, this is the third one now. Uh, so you can't just run with this one. But uh, if they pass the other tests as well, then uh, we need to be paying attention. Remember what they are, to the law and to the testimony. They have to agree with Scripture, all right? The second one was, if they make predictions, they should be fulfilled, although we have to allow for uh, the possibility of conditional matters. This one here is that they need to, I'm going to, I'm going to broaden the principle a bit and say they need to tell the truth about Jesus, the truth about his coming to, uh, to become one of us, about his virgin birth, his, his sinless life, uh, his death on the cross for us, his resurrection. They need to tell the truth about Jesus. And now we'll come to uh, the fourth explicit Bible test. Matthew 7, verses 15 and 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. By their fruits, you will know them. By their fruits, what kind of fruits do we see in the life of this particular person who claims the prophetic gift? We don't expect perfection in human beings, but we should expect to see good fruit on the tree, shouldn't we? We should expect to find that this person's teachings and, uh, and life uh, and deeds bear good fruit. 
That's a test that Jesus has given to distinguish true prophets from false. So we've seen that the Bible tells us to expect a prophet and to test the prophet, and we've looked at some ways in which we should do that. Now, uh, what more does the Bible tell us about prophets? Well, it tells us something about the personalities of Bible prophets. In the Bible, what kind of people did God call to serve as prophets? Well, um, God called Samuel to serve as a prophet when he was still a mere boy. Samuel continued to serve as a prophet for the rest of his long life. The Bible tells us all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Who else do we find in Scripture? Well, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest. Amos was a shepherd. The daughters of Philip were, well, certainly women. All of these people, the priest, the shepherd, the women, were prophets, called to be prophets. What made them prophets? Did God call them because they were priests or shepherds or women? No. God called these people without regard to their natural human status or position. What makes a prophet is not some special earthly qualification, but the gift of God, the calling of God and the gift of God. God calls them uh, to be prophets. God empowers the prophet. God gives the prophet the message. The human personality is present there still, of course, but what makes a prophet is the call of God. So, let's talk some more about uh, the work of Bible prophets. What does a prophet do? What kind of assignment does God give to prophets? The most common work of a prophet in the Bible was to call people to repentance. That was a tough job. People don't like to be told that they're not doing right, do they? <laughs> I don't like to be told, and I think probably you don't either. And yet, sometimes that's exactly what we need. And it is what prophets did a lot of, to call people to repentance, to change their minds, change their hearts, surrender their lives and hearts to God and his will, change their way of life. The prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel summoned all of Israel to make up their minds whom they were going to serve. He wanted them to serve God fully with their whole hearts. So he called on them to repent. You find that story in 1 Kings 17. John the Baptist preached in the desert. His preaching was so powerful that huge crowds came from the cities and villages all over Judea to hear him. What was his message? Repent, right? Repent. Don't just talk religion. Bring your life into harmony with the will of God. We could name many others. Jeremiah, Jonah, Amos, Obadiah. All are famous for their calls to repentance. That's the most frequent assignment that God gave to his prophets. So the prophet calls for repentance. What else? Prophets helped to organize the people of God. Almost from his first day as a prophet, Elisha, and we see him here in the picture catching Elijah's mantle as it falls to him. Almost from his first day as a prophet, Elisha was busy 
helping to organize the community of God's people in ancient Israel. He helped the city of Jericho fix their water supply. He set up schools for young men. He traveled from place to place advising and preaching and healing. Elisha's work of organizing God's people was especially crucial in that time of Israel's history because the kings were deeply involved in idolatry. The kings and the royal family provided no guidance or organizational support for the righteous people in the kingdom. That work fell heavily on Elisha. It was an assignment that he fulfilled in a mighty way. You know, near the end of Elisha's life, the king, who was not a devout man, came to visit him. When the king saw the old prophet lying sick in bed, he exclaimed, My father, my father, the chariots, of, uh, chariots and horsemen of Israel. That's how influential Elisha was. That's how indispensable he'd become in the nation. Elisha himself was like an entire army of chariots and horsemen for Israel. And even the king, who was involved in idolatry, respected Elisha for the powerful, godly influence that he had brought to the nation. In the years after the Jewish people returned from captivity to Babylon, the prophet Haggai called for a new vigorous movement to finish rebuilding the temple, which had been demolished by the Babylonians many years before. Haggai told them that their own current economic difficulties were the result of neglecting the temple. If they would make the rebuilding of God's house a top priority, God would bless them in their own personal lives. Haggai had the happy experience of seeing the people respond to his counsel. They changed their lives. They made rebuilding God's house their first priority. And God did bless them, just as he had promised. It's important to notice that in the Bible, the prophets did not possess political or ecclesiastical authority. They were not the rulers of the people. They didn't occupy offices with power. Instead, their work moved by way of spiritual influence. They gave advice to kings and high priests. They thundered warnings and urged people to take the right action. But the final decision of what people would do did not lie with the prophets. The power for making decisions remained in the hands of the properly established authorities of the monarchy and the priesthood. And sometimes they made the wrong choices, the wrong decisions. To the extent that we Christians think of ourselves as a prophetic voice, it's proper for us to speak up and voice our opinions about how nations and churches ought to be run. But we also must respect properly established government and church authority. What else did prophets do? We've spoken of several things that uh, they call for repentance. Oh, you can almost see that now on the screen, can't you? Call for repentance, organize the people of God, and prophets give guidance in crises. Often, when God's people faced emergencies, 
when calamity and disaster threatened the nation, God sent special guidance through his prophets. One wonderful example happened in the days of King Jehoshaphat of Judah. You can find the story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Two nearby nations, Moab and Ammon, along with some others, decided to attack the people of God. Military observers spotted the armies on the move and reported to the king that a huge enemy force was headed their way. Now, Jehoshaphat did what any godly person would do when facing such a great threat. He prayed. And then he called the entire nation to gather in Jerusalem for a special prayer meeting. In this prayer meeting, Jehoshaphat laid the situation out before God in prayer. He ended his prayer with these words, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. The huge crowd stood silent. Men, women, and children standing in the presence of God, waiting for his guidance and help. And suddenly they were startled by the words of a man named Jehazael, a prophet. Here's what he said. Listen, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. But God's. The prophet gave a few more words of instruction and encouragement. And the next day, Jehoshaphat and his army prepared to head out to confront the enemy. And then the king had a brilliant idea. Since God had already promised the victory and that the battle was his and not theirs, the king consulted with the people and they decided to have a choir march in front of the army, singing praise to God for the victory that he had already promised. Now, the Bible reports that as the choir moved out, singing those praises to God for the victory that he'd promised through the prophetic words of Jehazael, the invaders turned on each other, and the invaders completely destroyed each other. This story is the setting of one of the great principles of godly living. Jehoshaphat declared, we read this before, but it's worth reading again here. In 2 Chronicles 20:20, 20, 20, Jehoshaphat declared, believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. The prophet Jeremiah advised the nation when it faced the armies of Babylon. Malachi counseled the people when they were facing economic distress. God even sent messages to foreign people, not just Israel and Judah. Jonah, Daniel, and Elisha all gave inspired counsel to foreigners who were facing various crises. And so, to review, we would note that the most common task of the prophets was to call the people to repentance and prophets helped to organize God's people. They gave counsel in times of crisis. Prophets help people know God. God's supreme objective is to draw us to himself in love. The most important job of a prophet is to act as God's agent in awakening our love and respect for him. So then, what else does the Bible tell us about prophets? 
we find that prophets agree with earlier prophets. As we noticed before, when Paul uh, preached in Berea, the people there evaluated what he was saying by comparing it with the Bible. And that's our task today. Anytime someone claims to bring us a message from God, the first thing we have to do is compare it with what the Bible says. In the New Testament, we learn that after Jesus' <clears throat> resurrection, there were many prophets in the church. But the church did not build its doctrines on the sayings of those prophets. Rather, the church built its doctrines in those earliest days on what God had already revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. The contemporary prophets then urged people to bring their lives into harmony with what God had already revealed, especially the wonderful truth about Jesus, the Messiah. So we find that prophets agree with earlier prophets. True prophets agree with earlier prophets. What else? The Bible indicates that prophets help people know God. The prophet Isaiah described his call to ministry in this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There were angels there, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. And then Isaiah gets the message that he is to give. Notice, though, that the very foundation of Isaiah's ministry, the, the gasoline, the petrol that fueled his preaching, was this transforming vision of the throne room of heaven. Isaiah could use vivid word pictures of the goodness and the greatness of God because he had seen God in vision. He had had a direct encounter with the Lord of glory in vision. Today, we tend to think of prophets primarily as people who predict the future. The Bible prophets certainly did some of that, but prediction was not their major work. At the heart of their work was a vision of God because they had seen the Almighty, the Holy One, they were equipped to call us to holiness and worship. See what Isaiah wrote here. 
Have you not known, this is Isaiah 40, verses 28 and 29. Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. He gives understanding, uh, rather, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, to those who have no might, he increases strength. What a vision of God, of God's character. Isaiah had encountered God in that initial vision, and he continued to do so in subsequent visions. Moses gave us this view of God. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. The greatest work of a prophet is to show us God, as Moses has done here in this passage. So, to review again, what does the Bible say about prophets and and, uh, who they are, what they do? Well, in the Bible, we find that prophets are men, women, and even children, such as Samuel, called by God to act as his special agents. And these messages that he gave to them to give to us usually include a call to repentance. We find that prophets help to organize God's people. Prophets give counsel in times of crisis. They align with what God has already revealed. And most importantly, prophets help us know and understand God. Now let's use these characteristics, these these six here, Characteristics of a prophet. Let's use these to see how well Ellen White fits in with them. First of all, called by God. You know, Ellen White did not seek the honor of the prophetic office. In fact, when she first received visions, she hesitated to share them. She was terribly shy, and she did not want to put herself forward She began to tell her visions to others only when God insisted and others encouraged her to do so. She was not self-called. She was called by God. Second, what about that matter of calls to repentance that the prophets gave? This is Ellen White's most prominent work. Sometimes people who are critical of her work complain that she gave too much emphasis on God's call to holiness. But this emphasis on God's insistence that we live holy lives, this emphasis is right in line with the Bible, isn't it? And it's right in line with what we would expect of a prophet. Notice these words of Peter. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. Therefore, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, 
So be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. A call to holiness from Peter. Now compare those words from Peter with this quotation from Ellen White calling us to holy living. In Steps to Christ, page 32, she wrote, Beware of procrastination. Do not put off the work of forsaking your sins and seeking purity of heart through Jesus. Here is where thousands upon thousands have erred to their eternal loss. I will not here dwell upon the shortness and uncertainty of life, but there is a terrible danger, a danger not sufficiently understood in delaying to yield to the pleading voice of God's Holy Spirit, in choosing to live in sin, for such this delay really is. Sin, however small it may be esteemed, can be indulged in only at the peril of infinite loss. Infinite loss. What we do not overcome will overcome us and work out our destruction. And so Ellen White issues a call to repentance, a call to holy living, and urges us not to delay. Don't procrastinate on this. Don't put it off. Because if you do, you are choosing to live in sin, and you have no guarantee that you will ever do otherwise than that. So choose now to follow God and to live the life that will honor him. What about the work of prophets to organize God's people? Did Ellen White do anything like that? Well, one of the most dramatic effects of the prophetic ministry of Mrs. White is the church's organization that she helped to shape. Now, for those of you that don't know, the picture that's on the screen right now is a picture of our church's world headquarters in Silver Spring, Maryland. This is where I work. Um, it came as a result of our, our having organized, and we have uh, grown wonderfully as a result. But let me get back to Mrs. White and this issue at the beginning. Most of her close associates back in those early days had no use for any kind of organization. They thought it would, in fact, be wrong to organize, that by the very fact of organizing, they would become Babylon, and they certainly didn't want to do that. They felt that an individual with his Bible, that was all that mattered. Ellen White helped these believers understand that the mission of God required that believers come together for service. This service required organization, and the Bible approved of organization. What's more, these early believers thought that if they just told people in their own neighborhoods or in nearby places about Jesus, that was all that God expected of them. Mrs. White said, no, God has called us to go into the whole world. And today, as a direct result of her counsel, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is working in more than 200 countries, preaching the gospel in almost 900 languages. Those early believers were so focused on their own Bible study that they didn't properly understand the obligation that they had to their children and to future generations of young people to train them up in the way of God. 
But inspired by God, Mrs. White counseled them to establish schools. Now this picture is on the campus of Andrews University, which is the descendant of the first such school that we established in response to the counsel that God gave Ellen White. Back then it was Battle Creek College, but it was moved here to this location in Berrien Springs, Michigan, and now is called Andrews University. And by the way, notice all the flags around the, the open mall there. Uh, those represent the students from various nationalities that attend there at Andrews. Well, establishing schools, and today, the Adventist Church operates more than 7,000 schools with an enrollment of more than one and a half million students. Those schools include more than 100 colleges and universities, including at least five full-scale medical schools that I can think of. And think of the tens of millions of young people who have gone through those schools, who have benefited from a Christian education because of the prophetic counsel of that little lady, Mrs. White. Mrs. White told the church that they ought to regard their bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit to be carefully nurtured. Their health was a gift of God that they should protect and nourish. And as a result, people in the United States who follow her counsel today on health live approximately 10 years longer than the average population and they suffer less ill health while they're doing it. Taking care of our own bodies is not enough. Mrs. White told the church to build hospitals and you know, places where we could care for the sick, where we could serve the sick in the name of Christ. And today the church operates about 600 such institutions, hospitals, clinics, dispensaries around the world. Now. Obviously, Mrs. White didn't do all of this herself. She didn't build all those medical uh, facilities, all those schools. Um, she didn't preach in 200 countries. What she did do is deliver God's message about global outreach and health care and the importance of Christian education to a small group of people who would never, ever have imagined that uh, to do these things apart from the prophetic guidance that God gave to them through the ministry of Ellen White. And look at what has grown from that. Look at what has come from that. As the Bible prophets did, she helped to organize God's people for effective service and effective witness. What about the fact that prophets give guidance in times of crisis? How did that work itself out in Ellen White's life and ministry. Well, um, Ellen White was God's special agent in guiding the church during times of crisis. Back in the early days of our, our movement, uh, when the brethren were attempting to find in Scripture what God wanted them to believe and to teach, and sometimes they would come to an impasse. They just simply could not figure it out from Scripture. And at that point, Ellen White would be given a vision and a clear explanation of the texts that they were, were struggling with. And they could accept that, not because she had said it or it came in vision, but because they could see that it was true from Scripture. And they were able to 
um, agree on those things and then move on. And uh, the picture that's on the screen is, is a, uh, uh, an artist's idea of how that might have looked uh, back in those early days. But uh, Ellen White gave guidance in other times of crisis as well. In 1902, the church was facing difficulties. Really, 19, this is earlier, 1901. I think I have it wrong in my notes. The church was facing difficulties because the mission of the church had outgrown the structure of the church. She gave pointed counsel to the church leaders, telling them that they could not just keep doing things the way they'd always done them, they, uh, that moving forward in the mission of God required an entire restructuring of the church organization. And the leaders heard and responded to that call. And at the 1901 General Conference session, they, they put in uh, a different structure that would be more responsive to the needs of people in the places where they were doing the work. And that structure has blessed the church down to this day. We've even enlarged on it since then. But the following year, 1902, the main buildings of the church's premier institutions, its publishing house and its sanitarium, its place for caring for the sick, those premier institutions burned to the ground, both in 1902. What was the meaning of this catastrophe? Through the prophetic word of Mrs. White, God told the church that these were divinely directed events. They were powerful messages from heaven, warning the leaders to repent and change the way they had been running God's work. Through the prophetic message, the church was both forced to face its own spiritual failings and invited to move forward with God in a new way. That's the power of prophetic guidance. And it worked as the leaders again responded. So Ellen White provided guidance in times of crisis. And we find that uh, the work of Ellen White brought organizational blessing to the church, and it brings a measurable health benefit to those who are willing to read those counsels and obey them. Now let's look at another point of comparison, though maybe should we take a break or just go on? What do you think? All right, let's, let's break for five minutes, okay? Five minutes, come back, we'll jump back into it and finish up. All right, we should resume. I guess we still have some people coming back in. But we need to get started. I want to allow time for questions at the end. Um, so I, I think we'll be on track to do that. Okay. Let's see. We talked about this already, didn't we? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, So, well, I'll go back to here. So the work of Ellen White brought organizational blessing to the church, and it brings a measurable health benefit to those who are willing to read and 
follow those counsels. So now let's look at another point of comparison between Ellen G. White and the profile of a prophet that we find in Scripture. This is a point that we've mentioned uh, already, as you would expect, that prophets agree with earlier prophets. Now, what about Ellen White? Let's see, I really didn't mean to go there quite yet. But what about Ellen White's attitude toward the Bible? Did she think of herself as a replacement for the Bible? Does the church put Ellen White forward as the foundation of its doctrines or as superior to the Bible in any way? No. And as for Ellen White's own view, we can find her answer to these questions very easily. Ellen White concluded her very first book, published when she was 23 years old. She concluded her first book with the words that I, I want to share with you now, and we find them most conveniently in the book Early Writings, but that actually combines several of her early things. Uh, so she didn't write Early Writings first, but her Early Writings are gathered in that book, Early Writings, okay? All right, but here is how she ended her first book. I recommend to you, dear reader, the Word of God as your rule of faith and practice. Was she exalting herself here? Not at all. I recommend to you the Word of God as the rule of your faith and practice. Nearly 60 years later, when she was 81 years old, she traveled across the United States by train from her home in California to Washington, D.C., for the International Convention of the Church, a general conference session. This is 1909 now. It's the last one that she would ever attend. She was not feeling well. The trip was hard on her. Still, she spoke a number of times during that session, and she was asked to give the concluding sermon. And when she finished her sermon, she turned to go back to her chair, but then suddenly she turned back. She came back to the pulpit and facing the assembled church leaders from everywhere in the world that we had work at that time, she took her Bible and held it out in what one witness there described as hands that trembled with age. And her final words to them were, brethren and sisters, I commend to you this book. And then she closed it and turned and sat down. Those were her last spoken words to the, the church at large. She still wrote, but she did not uh, speak again at a general conference session. Like a thread running constantly through her sermons, her articles, her books, we find her deep, unshakable confidence in the Bible as the Word of God. She spoke of her work as that of a lesser light, reflecting the glorious truth of God that was revealed in the Bible. Her job was to call people to respect the Bible, to have confidence in it, and to obey it. And if a central test of a prophet is how much he or she agrees with the Bible and how much th that person regards the Bible, then Mrs. White passes that test 
with flying colors. She echoes the Bible in affirming the full divinity of Jesus. She lines up with the Bible, with the Bible prophets, in calling God's people to obey the law of God. She reminds us over and over again of how certain and rich God's promises really are, his promises of forgiveness and of transforming power. That was the thing that really affected me when I was a teen. Mirroring the Bible, she sees the beginning and the end of human history anchored in God's love. Her language, her theology, her spirituality are all rooted in the deepest reverence for what God has said in his word. That's the kind of prophet Ellen White was. And I mention this now by way of contrast. You know, there is another person who is regarded by many people today as a prophet. His name was Joseph Smith. He lived a part of his life during the time that Ellen White was alive. But what Mormons say about Joseph Smith is very different from what we say about Ellen White. Uh, they will point to Joseph Smith's writings in preference to the Bible. They have called uh, his writings um, God's Bible, God's word for the Western Hemisphere, while the scriptures were God's word for the Eastern Hemisphere. Um, very different from what Ellen White saw as her role and from what the Adventist Church uh, looks at her as, as being. Uh, while they... Um, make a great deal of their prophet. We attempt to direct people to the Bible first. And maybe rather late in the, in the effort, we, uh, uh, we begin to talk to them about Ellen White. Now, I should mention that I have often given people books by Ellen White early on in their contact with, with me and with the church. And I haven't even said much about who she was only that uh, they might enjoy this book. It's a good book. I remember one woman with whom, as a, as a pastor, I was having Bible studies, and I had left her one of Ellen White's books. I wish I knew now which one it was. I don't remember. It was probably either Steps to Christ or The Desire of Ages. I had left the book with her, and when I came back the next week, she met me at the door, and before I even stepped into the house, she said, who is this Ellen G. White? She must be inspired. The book had spoken to her. She had heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in that book. And uh, uh, that, is, that is true for many people. It certainly was true for me. But we don't push Ellen White to the front. We want them to go to the Bible. And, uh, and then when they're established in Scripture... Uh, we can, uh, this is how we most often do it, I think, that we, we share with them how the Bible tells us to expect the prophetic gift in the last days. And we go through Bible texts like what I've done with you today. And we show them how Ellen White has, has fulfilled that expectation that we find in Scripture. It's very different from how the Mormons uh, do things. But um, Ellen White upheld the Bible, pointed to the Bible, and uh, wanted us to regard the Bible. Now, um, as I said before, she wrote more than 100,000 pages 
of sermons and articles and books and letters, is there any one theme that shows more strongly than others in all of those pages of prophetic counsel? Yes, there is. Mrs. White's best-known books are the five volumes of a narrative walk through the Bible, uh, through major parts of the Bible. Taken together, we call these books the Conflict of the Ages series. These books present the story of God's dealings with this world from Genesis to Revelation. And here's the way the first book in the series begins, the book Patriarchs and Prophets. Here's how it begins. These statements are on the first page of the text of the book. God is love, 1 John 4, 16. His nature, his law, is love. Every manifestation of creative power is an expression of infinite love. And then I think it's the next paragraph on the same page. Uh, starts like this. The history of the great conflict between good and evil, from the time it first began in heaven to the final overthrow of rebellion and the total eradication of sin, is also a demonstration of God's unchanging love. Well, um, that is how she introduces this series. And it's easy to see God's love in the beauties of nature, in the exquisite shape of an, uh, an orchid, uh, the breathtakingly beautiful sunset, the flavor of a ripe peach. Uh, these things naturally prompt our hearts to give thanks to God who loved us so much that he created a world of beauty. But it is sometimes difficult to see God when we are facing the darker realities of this world. Sickness, crime, disaster, starvation, famine. In her Conflict of the Ages series, Mrs. White helps us to see God's love behind every aspect of history and our present world. She even takes on the stern examples of judgment and curse in the Old Testament, the destruction of the world by the flood, the punishment of Uzzah, who was killed when he touched the ark. Mrs. White analyzes each of these events and shows that even here we can see a loving purpose. God was not, not acting out of malice or on a whim. Instead, God was doing only what was necessary to protect human freedom and human access to a knowledge of God. God was looking after the eternal well-being of all creation in every instance, in every age, in every story. God was and is love. In this series, the Conflict of the Ages series, from the beginning of evil onward, Mrs. White traces the hand uh, traces God's hand. She tells us the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. She sees God still active for his people when they're sent off in exile to Babylon. After 70 years, God brings his people back from captivity. And through the prophets, he seeks to prepare them to welcome the Messiah. And then Jesus is born. And after his death and resurrection, the church is born. At last, 
Uh, well, the gospel spreads across the globe, and finally we come to the very end, and uh, at last God has his way. Sin and suffering and death are vanquished. Here's how Mrs. White describes that glorious eternal future of the people of God. Here's how she ends the last book in the series, the book, The Great Controversy. And the years of eternity, as they roll, will bring richer and still more glorious revelations of God and of Christ. As, no <clears throat> as knowledge is progressive, so will love, reverence, and happiness increase. The more men learn of God, the greater will be their admiration of his character. The great controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things, animate and inanimate, in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. Did you catch it? The first sentence of the first book, the book about creation, is God is love. That's how our story, the story of humanity, begins. And the last sentence of the last book in the series, the picture of, of uh, how the story of humanity plays out in the eternity beyond sin, ends with the same expression, God is love. These are like bookends on, on either, either end of the shelf in which we find the story of, of uh, God's dealings with us. It begins and ends with that phrase, God is love. After all the tragedy and injustice, after the devil has done his worst and human beings have failed and stumbled, when all the confusion is over and everyone sings one song, what song is that? God is love. This is the great truth that's at the center of Ellen White's prophetic ministry. Because God is love, obeying him makes sense. Because God is love, confidence in him makes perfect sense, even in the face of loss and disappointment. Because God is love, he has chosen us to send us messages through a prophetic servant named Ellen White. And it makes sense to pay attention, to obey and receive the benefits that always follow when we heed a prophetic message. God is love. So, now what? You've heard my testimony about the spiritual impact of Ellen White, Ellen White's writings in my own life, at least the beginning of it. There certainly has been a lot more since then. You've heard the testimony of scientists who've examined the impact of her health counsel. You've heard and, and we've read on the screen Bible verses that outline the work of a prophet. So, now what? I want to encourage you to read the writings of Ellen G. White. You might want to start with Steps to Christ, as I did. It will warm your heart. The Desire of Ages, the story about Jesus, would be an excellent book to follow that. Then, 
you might want to start through the five books that we've just talked about, the Conflict of the Ages series. Take the reading at your own speed. Read the Bible passages that sometimes are listed at the bottom of the first page of a chapter. Compare what Ellen White wrote with what the Bible says. Practice this counsel of Paul. He wrote, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21. I hope that you'll discover for yourself the rich treasure that God has given us in the words and ministry of Ellen White. This last day expression of the gift of prophecy, a glorious testimony from God's heart to yours. Well, now how can we share the blessings of this treasure, these writings, with others? Well, I've made available to you something that I hope will help, that, uh, that little CD-ROM disc that has several PowerPoint presentations that you can use. You can adapt them as you see fit to do. You can translate them and, and put your language into them. Uh, in other words, you can, you can modify them. They're not locked. Uh, and I hope that you will use them in your home churches and with your youth groups. Uh, and there are you know, some other resources on there, too, that, uh, that will be helpful to you in sharing. But let me just kind of quickly take a look at some uh, principles that may help in, in sharing uh, the blessings of these writings with others. First of all, pray for the Spirit's guidance. It is not up to us to convict people, to bring them to a knowledge of, of God. That is the Spirit's work. But we want to work in harmony with the Spirit. So we pray for the Spirit's guidance in directing us to people who might be responsive and in helping us to say things that will, will be appealing to them. So pray for the Spirit's guidance. That's awfully important. Two, be positive and enthusiastic. If these writings have blessed you, you can be confident they will bless others and you can be enthusiastic about them as you share them with others. Three, share your own experience briefly. Again, if they have impacted you, share that with somebody else. What has happened to you as a result of, of reading these writings? Don't go on you know, with a long story. Make it brief, but share what these things have meant to you. Number four, encourage people simply to read. You don't have to argue with them about, um, you know, about the, the nature of the prophetic gift necessarily or even talk with them about the fact that it is a, a prophetic um, a product here initially. Maybe you will, but maybe you won't. You don't necessarily have to. But invite them to read. God is going to do things in their lives as they read. He'll do things in your life as you read. So encourage people to read. Number five, offer an attractive form of the book. Now, this may not be an option everywhere, but uh, at least where I am, we do have uh, various forms. Um, here is one, one uh, copy of Steps to Christ with a, a picture of Jesus on the cover. Um, here's another one. It's uh, been given an alternate title, Keys to Happiness. But the, the other title is down, the regular title is down here, Steps to Christ. Well, um, 
you know, the picture here might be attractive to some. In this particular one, there are illustrations inside. Some would find that to be attractive and uh, look for an attractive way of presenting the books if that's available to you. Um, there's, uh, you're probably aware that there's an emphasis on the book The Great Controversy now. And in order to make that book attractive and inviting to people, uh, in some parts of the world, they have done a, a, a kind of a sampler from it as an introduction to it. It's not a substitute for the great controversy, but it is intended to awaken an interest in the great controversy. So this, this book, uh, The Great Hope, is really quite small, you see. It has 11 chapters. It, uh, it is hoped that people uh, might look at that and say, oh, I could read that and uh, get into it and become interested. And if they do, there's information in it how to get the full book. So look for ways to um, offer a book in an attractive form. And uh, follow up tactfully. Inquire. You know, if it's a friend or someone you know, uh, have you had a chance to get into the book yet? Uh, how's it going? What are you finding? Be tactful. You don't want to back people into a corner. Uh, but if you are interested in these books, it won't be unnatural for you to be interested in what they might think of them, too. So be positive, follow up tactfully. Now, many times we become concerned because we think, well, what if they ask me questions about Ellen White, or uh, you know, what if this, or what if that? Don't let those things slow you down. Uh, if something comes up, you can always say, well, I don't know, but I'll try to find out. That's a perfectly acceptable answer. And I'm recommending here that you should know what resources might be available to you. Uh, here are some that are online. We have a section called Issues and Answers at our uh, main longstanding website, which is whiteestate.org. So look for issues and answers there, and you'll find help with some things there. We also have what we call the Digital Resource Center. And uh, that is also at whiteestate.org, but you would just put the letters DRC and a dot in front of whiteestate.org, drc.whiteestate.org, to access the Digital Resource Center. Now, there are a number of things here. There's actually a huge amount of information here from our files, our question and answer files, our document files, but also I have been responding to questions online for, uh, from people for 17 years. And those emailed answers are practically all uh, available for searching in the Digital Resource Center. So you can see how I or other white estate people have answered questions on the, the topics that you may be dealing with. That could be a very valuable resource to you drc at whiteestate.org. There are also online books at whiteestate.org. You'll see that as one of the menu options. And here you'll find um, some helpful books, not only by Ellen White, but uh, books about Ellen White and her work. Um, and they are also on our new beta website, egwwritings.org.
under reference works. Now, what kinds of books do we have there? Well, we have uh, Messenger of the Lord, which you also got on the, the disc that we gave you yesterday. Uh, we have um, F.D. Nichols' book, Ellen G. White and Her Critics. I think I'm going to be mentioning these here shortly on the, on the screen. Um, yes, here they are. Both of those, I've, I've written out the title for you and their author. Um, they are on there. There are other books as well about uh, Ellen White and her work and in some cases uh, deal with, with her, um, her critics. Uh, Nichols' book, Ellen White and Her Critics, is the most extensive book on that subject that we have, even though it's old. It's about 60 years old, uh, and it needs some updating, but still, the basic work that's there is very helpful. I brought along another book, which I also saw at the Adventist Book Center here. Uh, this is called Ellen White Under Fire by Judd Lake. Judd Lake is one of the teachers at Southern Adventist University in the United States. And this is a very helpful book if you're having to deal with critics of Ellen White. So we don't have this one on our website, but uh, I thought I would mention it because it is, it is certainly helpful. Well, um, we're talking about uh, knowing your resources, but the ultimate resource is the Lord. Isn't that right? Trust in him. The work is his. The battle is not yours, but God's. And so trust in him. You just have the privilege of joining him in his work. Well, um, the Bible says, and this is from that experience in Chronicles that we talked about. Uh, here was the prophet's message. Listen, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Second Chronicles 20, verse 15. May God bless you as you study these precious writings for yourself and as you share them with others. Now we have some time for questions. If you'd like to raise a question, speak up so I can be sure to hear. Yes. I'm going to try to repeat it, but uh, go ahead, do speak up. Okay, the question was, there are some Adventists who say, we have the Bible, we, we don't need Ellen White. In fact, doesn't she say that if you had studied your Bibles as you should have, you would not have needed the testimonies? Yes, she does say that. But uh, what, what then can we say to Adventists who present this as an objection against Ellen White? Back in, oh, I think it's 1861, if I remember correctly, um, Uriah Smith uh, responded to that question in what I thought was a very effective way. I can't quote him exactly now, but it was in a, an editorial in the review. And he, he told this kind of story. I'll tell it in my words. He said, 
Imagine that we go on a journey by ship, and uh, the owner of the vessel tells us that uh, he gives us a book at the start that outlines some of the difficulties that we'll face and dangers and such and how to avoid them. And then he says, but the end of the journey is especially dangerous. And so for that part of it, I have appointed for you a pilot who will help to steer you through the, the reefs and, and the rocks uh, at the last part of the journey. Um, and so when that pilot comes, you must pay attention to him. And so, Smith says, we start out on our journey, and sure enough, we encounter the things that the guidebook uh, told us. And when we get near the end of the journey, the pilot comes and offers his services. But some on board the ship say, we don't need you. We have the original guidebook. That's all that we need. We stand on that. Now, he said, um, I ask you, which, which one which of the, the, the travelers is really following the original guidebook? The ones who welcome the pilot that it says will come, or the ones who say, we don't need you, we have the original guidebook? And uh, the answer was plain enough. Now, he said, some are going to object and say, oh, you want to make Sister White our pilot, do you? He said, no, I'm not saying any such thing. What I'm saying is that we need to take seriously what the Word of God tells us about the last days and the gift of prophecy in the last days. And if we, if we have someone who comes claiming to have the gift of prophecy, and we can establish from the word of God that they are exercising the genuine gift, and we've talked about that today, tests of the genuine gift of prophecy, then we are obligated to accept that uh, messenger as one who has come from God. We're obligated by the very word of God that these other people are appealing to. And so, he says, who really does stand upon the word of God? Those who reject the voice that it says will come or those who accept it? I thought that was a good answer from Uriah Smith way back then. We need to remember what the Bible says. We've gone through the Bible evidence today telling us to expect the prophetic voice. And if God actually goes to the trouble to send us messages through this means, why should we reject them? Why should we say, oh no, we're just going to stay with the Bible? That does not make sense. Uh, you had a question also, didn't you? No? Okay, I'm sorry. Yes. What purpose does the writing, do the writings of Ellen White have, devotional or doctrinal? Well, we do not get our doctrines from Ellen White. We get our doctrines from the Bible. But her, the purpose of her writings is more than devotional, isn't it? Um, as we talked about today, uh, the work of a prophet to call people to repentance, uh, to call them back to scripture and such. This is more than simply devotional. Uh, there is an obligation that comes upon us when the prophet speaks that is more than just simply, oh, that's nice about, uh, you know, having a relationship with God. So I think we, we, have, we have an obligation to hear what the prophet says and an obligation to accept that and follow it. But I would not uh, say that Ellen White's writings are to be doctrinal for us. They might point us toward certain 
uh, aspects of Scripture that otherwise we might overlook. But we will get our doctrines from Scripture. Yes. Do, do we expect any further prophets? Um, or has, has the age of prophecy now closed? I think that's really what we're saying, isn't it? I don't find any indication in Scripture that prior to the time of Christ, there is a cutoff for the, the age of prophecy. Um, we read the, the passages today that uh, the gifts... Um, are given to us to function until we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Joel speaks of, uh, speaks of prophets in the plural. Now, we have seen the ministry of Ellen White, and that has blessed us tremendously. Will there be another prophet? Ellen White was asked that question when she was alive, and she said, God has not revealed that to me. Whether or not that happens, my writings will still speak. But she did not indicate that, uh, that her writings would be all that God would, would uh, give us. Personally, and I'm just telling you personally, I expect that we will see more prophetic voices before the end. But I, uh, God has not revealed that to me. I'm just telling you my own opinion, okay? <laughs> yes. All right, the question was, if you give, say, the book uh, Patriarchs and Prophets to someone who is not a church member, and they read in the opening chapter uh, things about the great controversy between Christ and Satan that we do not have uh, recorded for us in Scripture uh, about the, work, you know, the workings of Satan in heaven and so on, and uh, the person asks, where did this come from? Uh, you know, where, did, where do I find this in the Bible? What shall we say? Well... We would say, I think, that, uh, uh, that we believe, and, and Ellen White herself believed, that God had revealed these things to her. And while they are not themselves necessarily in Scripture, they harmonize with what we do find in Scripture. They do not contradict uh, Scripture. So they are, they are further information on, on the, the big picture that the Bible does give us. If they contradicted scripture, that would be another matter, but they do not. Now, the question may be, is this the best way to begin with the person outside the church? And perhaps it isn't, um, unless there is some particular reason for using uh, this book, or if, if we may have prepared the person in some way for it. But, um, but I, I think we can, <clears throat> we can say that, that uh, God reveals to his prophets things that he wants his people to know. And uh, if those have not been revealed before, so be it. Um, God is free 
to reveal previously unknown things to people whom he, uh, to his people, to do so through prophets. Yes. You'd like to know about um, parts of her writings that have been heavily criticized. Did you have a particular thing in mind? Okay, I don't know if you all could hear that, but uh, she was uh, mentioning uh, one issue that uh, is often talked about, and that is uh, the question of amalgamation. And, uh, you know, what do, we, what do we say about this? Now, I was interested um, because the way that you described it was amalgamation between humans and animals. That is actually not what Ellen White said. She spoke of, I, I can almost quote this, I think, um, in uh, Spiritual Gifts, Book 3, uh, she wrote about um, the, uh, the time of the flood and so on, that uh, um, many animals were destroyed in the flood, uh, animals that uh, had been uh, the result of amalgamation. Then she said, since the flood, there has been amalgamation of man and beast, as may be seen in the almost infinite varieties of animals and in certain races of men. Now, her critics, and unfortunately even you know, some who are in the church and should not be her critics, have read her expression, amalgamation of man and beast, as amalgamation between man and beast. That was not what she said. She said amalgamation of man and beast. Um, was she thinking of a crossing between humans and animals? I really think her statement rules it out, and I will tell you why. If, if what she was talking about was humans and animals having crossed, what she said that resulted in was not just certain races of men, but the almost endless varieties of species of animals. Now, did Ellen White really believe that the great variety of species of animals was the result of crossing between animals and humans? I don't think so. That is, that is a little too much to believe. You know, we might be persuaded that, like some other people in, in her age, uh, she believed that uh, certain primitive peoples might be a crossing between humans and, and certain animals. We might be tempted to believe that, 
that is to believe that she believed it, though I don't think she did, but, but to believe that all the animals, the great variety of animals, were the result of crossing between humans and animals, that's more than I can believe. And I think it's more than Ellen White believed. I'm interested in the fact that I've never found one critic of hers who points to that part of the statement. They always point only to the other part where she mentions certain races of men. And I think they leave out the other because they know that if you really think about it, you're going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, that's, that's not, that isn't, that can't be what Ellen White believed. I don't think it was what she believed. I think what she was talking about was crossing among animals and uh, some intermarrying among humans. She talked about the, uh, uh, well, the Bible speaks of the, the sons of, of God having married the daughters of men. That's in, uh, in Genesis chapter 6. And Ellen White talks about that when she looks at that text. Uh, she's talking about the, uh, the followers of God mingling with those who were not the followers of God. Um, and, and so there may have been uh, you know, some degeneration that occurred uh, on the human side. But I, I think her statement is best understood this way, uh, that since the flood there has been amalgamation of animals and of men, not between the two. To me, that makes the most sense. And uh, it, it conforms with, uh, with science as well, you know. So I think there are um, responses to a good many of these uh, issues that people bring up. We have that particular one on our website. Um, it's actually adapted from, um, from uh, uh, F.D. Nichols' book, Ellen G. White and Her Critics. That is an excellent book if you're having to deal with the critics. You need to look at Ellen G. White and her critics. We have the full text of it on our website. It's also on our CD-ROM, so you can access it. I don't think the book is in print anymore, but uh, you can find it electronically. Let's take another question in the back. Yes. All right, so the question is, in our, our uh, first uh, question and answer that we had here, and I referred to Uriah Smith and, and his illustration, um, it raises the question, is the Bible sufficient for the whole journey? Well, yes. Yes, the Bible is sufficient for the whole journey. But if we're going to take the Bible for what it says, the Bible tells us to expect God to, to give us special help in the end. The Bible tells us to expect it. So if we accept what the Bible says, we should look for a prophetic um, experience, a prophetic gift at the end. Um, I don't know a way around that. It's what the Bible says. <laughs> uh, and, and because I believe that the Bible is 
God's word, I have to take it seriously when it says that. Yes, in the back. Okay, the question is, do we believe that Ellen White is a prophet uh, in the same sense, equally as um, Isaiah and other Bible prophets uh, were prophets? If so, uh, why, why are we trying to make a distinction between her writings and the Bible? Isn't, aren't they the equal of the Bible? Uh, how do we resolve this, this particular um, issue? Did I get your question about right? Okay, good. Um, let me, let me put it this way. We believe that Ellen White was inspired by the same Holy Spirit as inspired Isaiah and the other Jeremiah, the other Bible prophets. There is no difference in, in the, the degree of inspiration uh, that God gives when he um, gives the prophetic gift to one of his servants, the prophets. But God has also um, overseen the collection of some of those writings into what we call the Bible. Are those all of the writings of the Bible prophets? No. The Bible itself tells us of other prophets who wrote, genuine prophets. Um, I'm going to turn to 1 Chronicles 29.29, and I hope I've remembered it right. First um, Chronicles 29, 29. Now the acts of King David, first and last, uh, indeed, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, in the book of Gad the seer. And it goes on to talk about a little bit more. But here are three prophets. We know one of them, Samuel, um, there are two books in the Bible with his name. I don't know whether Samuel wrote those books, but um, let's assume for the moment that he did. Uh, but there are two others, Nathan and Gad, and the Bible tells us about both Nathan and Gad. We know they were genuine prophets of God, and here we find that they wrote books. Where are those books? They're not in the Bible. Why not? Well... God did not see fit to preserve them to be included in the Bible. Does that mean that they were not genuine prophets of God on the, uh, on the level with Samuel or others? No, it doesn't mean that. The Bible does say that they're prophets. Uh, so we can have uh, prophets, even writing prophets, who are not what we would call canonical prophets. Their, their writings are not included in the canon of Scripture. What if archaeologists today dug up a book that we could verify was the book of Nathan. Would we revise our Bibles? Would we include the book of Nathan, say, right after the books of Samuel? I don't think so. I don't think we would do that. 
the Bible stands as it is. But we would recognize that this was a book from a genuine prophet of God. And if there were things that were not of just local application to the time of David, let's say, uh, we, would, we would pay attention. We wouldn't make, the, make it part of the Bible, but we would pay attention to the messages from a genuine prophet. And I think that's what we should do with Ellen White. Yes, another one, okay. What, okay, the question is, what does Ellen White uh, indicate might be the, uh, or, or uh, what does she say about some of the perils that we would face in, in the last generation now? Well, um, that's a good question. It is one that uh, I, I think I would have to answer that in this way, that the, the perils of the last days are in many ways the perils of all the days, because we are, Satan always tempts us in any generation to set our, our hearts, our minds on the things of this world, whether uh, that is um, things that we accumulate, uh, whether it is um, uh, sexual temptations, whether it is uh, the desire for power, whether it's the desire for um, respectability, uh, whatever it may be, any of those things may be an idol. And they will displace our true worship of God. This generation has toys and things that other generations did not have. But the essential elements are still the same. The essential elements uh, by which Satan appeals to us. Uh, you know, the Bible refers to these as the uh, uh, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We still have them. They're still working on us today. Satan sees to that. And Ellen White, even though she wrote 100 years ago, calls us strongly and effectively and passionately to turn our eyes to Jesus, to see our Redeemer in all of his beauty, in all that he has done for us. And when we do that, when we get a glimpse of Jesus, really a glimpse of Jesus, the other things begin to lose their, their draw on us. They lose their power because we see in him goodness embodied, goodness expressed, love poured out, you know, I have become more aware just in the last year or two of what crucifixion was about. It's, it's pretty gruesome. It really is. 
it, is, it has been described as the most painful as well as the most, I don't know, humiliating, disrespectful kind of death that one can suffer. My wife broke her wrist a few years ago in a fall. And uh, the doctors felt it would be best to uh, put a, a metal plate in there to hold the bones together. So that would require surgery. She went under general anesthesia. But I, I was with her as they were preparing her. And the anesthetist came with a needle and, and uh, was injecting uh, in the shoulder. And I said, why are you doing that? Well, it, it anesthetizes the arm. Yeah, but isn't she going under general anesthesia? Yes. But we've found out that with this surgery, if we don't do this, the patients wake up screaming. And something clicked in my mind. There is a, there's a nerve that runs right down here between the bones of the wrist. And that nerve would be affected in the surgery. And even after they were no longer messing with it, it would still make for excruciating pain, as though the, the whole arm is on fire. Now, you've probably heard that crucifixion, in crucifixion, the, the nail was put through the wrist. You may have resisted believing that, as I did for quite some time. But I think it is not really debatable. Um, there have been tests done with cadavers, with dead bodies, uh, to see if a nail through the palm would hold the body in place, and it does not. It rips out. The Romans were efficient. They would do uh, what would work efficiently. Um, and the, the last problem I had with this was what I had heard once, that the Greek word for hand includes the wrist, I thought to myself, I don't know about that. That's a bit of a stretch. But I can show you that in Scripture. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 12, I found this only a year or two ago, and it was kind of the last piece that uh, settled my mind. And I have a reason for telling you all this. Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison, and the angel comes to deliver him. And uh, verse 7, the angel tells him, he strikes Peter and uh, says, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his what? Off his hands. Now, they didn't put the chains around here, did they? They put them here. The Greek word covers, it includes the wrist. The word excruciating comes from two Latin words, out of the cross. Excruciating pain. The way a person dies in crucifixion is by suffocation. When the arms are, are put up, when they're held up for a long time, the body can no longer work the muscles here. They tire and you can't breathe. And the only way to relieve that is to somehow lower the arms and so the person on the cross who is suffocating involuntarily will pull against those nails in order to lower 
you know, to lower the arms, let the rib cage go down and be able to exhale. And then they catch the next breath and sag down again. And this goes on and on. And at the same time, the, the back that's been torn apart is, is rubbing up against the, the tree. It is gruesome. It is terrible. What's more, victims were crucified naked. Because Rome wanted to demonstrate that this person is nothing, nothing. Jesus came to the cross knowing what it was. The Bible says that he endured the cross despising the pain. No, despising the shame. I'm moved by that. I am moved. When we look at Jesus and what he did for us, the other things of life really begin to look kind of worthless. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What a powerful thing. So what is Ellen White's counsel for people in this last generation? It's Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to him. She said, it would be well if we would spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. Let the imagination take each scene, especially the closing ones. And as we do this, our, our um, lives will be, I've forgotten the, the exact quote, but um, our love will, will be quickened and uh, our, our um, uh, we will be more, more firmly committed to Jesus. It's true. It's true. That's what we need to do. Well, are there other questions? How's our time? We're just about out. I might be able to take one more if you want to. Um, yes, you haven't had one yet. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Are all of Ellen White's books available in digital form? Yes, they are because we have her entire published writings on our CD-ROM and on our, our website in that database. So uh, the only exception to that would be things that were published a year or less ago. We, we don't put them online for a year. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for being here. If you want to stay by and ask some questions more, you can. But our time is over. Let's stand together and pray, shall we? Our Father in heaven, how grateful we are for Jesus, our Savior. I'm thankful, too, for how Ellen White makes him so real to us. You have blessed us in this church in so many ways through the gift of prophecy. May we welcome that gift. May we utilize it. May we share it with others. I pray your blessing on each person here. Lord, we're from many different countries, many different places. But we have one uh, important thing that unites us, and that is a belief in Jesus and in his message for this time. May we be faithful, I pray. 
May your spirit guide each of us, not only that our lives may reflect Jesus, but that we may point others to him. Thank you for your blessing on us. May we walk with you always and one day walk with you in your kingdom when Jesus comes, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.